Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan, coming at you here with episode 51. Crazy how many episodes it's been, but this train just keeps on going. World War III just keeps on expanding. And here we are, you know, well past a month into these this Gaza war where Israel continues to surround Gaza City, continues to bombard and increase the levels of civilian casualties. Unfortunately, thousands of children are dead and buried under the rubble, and it doesn't seem like Israel Israelis and Netanyahu have any intention on slowing this down anytime soon. Of course, we're seeing some big things happening in Russia. Putin visiting the front lines once again, pretty the first time this has happened in the aftermath of the whole Prigozhin situation. We're seeing huge uprisings in Spain as the left and right wings clash in the midst of some pretty insane governmental overreach. We have big things going on in Serbska with Dodik, and of course, the persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church continues. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing good, Conrad. And naturally, as you mentioned, Israel, again, is still at the forefront of news in terms of what's been happening. But in a very you know palpable sense, we aren't really getting too much imagery from Israel and frankly, from Gaza itself, from the Palestinian regions, from the Gaza Strip. And the, although we do know the numbers keep escalating, even official sources from the World Health Organization, UN, are informing us of over 10,000 uh, Palestinians slain at this point with 4,400 of them being children, which, you know, these numbers are incredible given that it's been only about a month of conflict exactly this week. And now that we're, you know, first, second week of November, it has, uh, it has kind of shown us that the Israelis are really showing no, no attempts really to cause any sort of ceasefire. The mission naturally, as we mentioned last week, is to divide Gaza, which it has been done. Gaza is now officially divided into two, and the Israeli forces are moving in closer with their tanks, their infantry, the and at the same time they have bombardment cover of the main city. So now they're moving in from essentially two directions, from the middle of Gaza and from the north, encircling the primary Gaza city in that northern part of the strip and so yeah what we're going to see essentially is an increased amount of urban warfare probably direct footage as well from palestinian hamas fighters who naturally they don't have direct internet connection internet connection is very sparse but the footage that we are getting is very interesting like from the ground i mean you've, you've probably seen it conrad like the urban warfare style where you have you know these hamas fighters with rpgs which is rocket propelled grenades essentially the grenade launchers like you'd see in arnold schwarzenegger movies of the 1970s and 80s these hamas fighters jumping out of these rabbit holes in the ground and all out of these tunnels 40 50 meters away from an israeli merkava tank and simply shooting directly at it and blowing it up and these tanks they seem to just be holding the line like just, most of them are just standing around the israeli soldiers are patrolling but again these hamas fighters are catching them off guard i suppose and really causing damage naturally the the claims are at least that 150 hamas uh, israeli tanks sorry have been destroyed at this point but but claims from both sides including the israelis they're only claiming look we've lost 34 soldiers at this point um and with having a very conservative strategy and a conservative approach to this anti-terrorist or you know sort of operation in gaza so both sides are claiming really either really small numbers in terms of the israelis or really large numbers in terms of the palestinians so claiming that they've actually taken out 150 israeli tanks i mean i'm not sure exactly who to believe at this point but the footage we're getting you know as sparse as it is is uh, really showing us that the hamas the fighters of hamas and the actual palestinian people are really not surrendering and they're not interested in being sort of subjugated and being pressured into you know giving up their primary city and their freedom here i mean look on the hamas versus palestinian authority debate again i'm not a supporter of hamas but let's be honest there's settlements in the west bank there were no more settlements in gaza after Hamas took over. They ended that in Gaza, and then on October 7th, they actually expanded the territory. So if you are 
someone who actually wants to take the fight to Israel is it's it's no question why these people supported Hamas. It's it's the and to call them a terrorist organization while again, while they may have engaged in what to the West may seem like terroristic acts in the broad spectrum of the ongoing war basically since nineteen forty eight with Israel, considering that Israel Israel violates international law, commits a war crime by having Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank and used to have it in Gaza. This idea that suddenly, oh, now that the news has publicized civilians coming under fire, it's it's the biggest thing ever because, of course, it was the Palestinians when we know that, you know, Palestinian civilians have been targeted by Israelis for, for decades and almost a century at this point in about 20 years. But one of those big escalations in this conflict regarding those civilians was the fact that Hezbollah decided to strike Israeli civilian targets for the first time in response to Israel striking Lebanese civilian targets in Hezbollah-controlled territory. But uh, they targeted multiple targets in Kiryat Shmona, which is an Israeli town in the north, with 112mm grad rockets, and basically they launched 12 rockets, and I believe 8 of those at least touched down, the Iron Dome completely failed, and Israel faced multiple civilian casualties, which marked a dramatic escalation in the situation in the northern front with, with Lebanon and Hezbollah. And of course, I'm recording this before Het Nasrallah's, he's going to address another speech on Sunday. Of course, the hype is a little bit less considering the last speech was, you know, perhaps a little underwhelming compared to others. But this targeting of those civilians was the first real escalation that happened since Nasrallah's speech that we covered last week. So that that's definitely a big escalation in the northern front. And at this point, we can anticipate that at any point, Israel could completely expand to a northern front that they want to decide to do on their terms because the IDF chief of staff, Halevi, he threatened Hezbollah. He said, we are ready at any moment to launch a preemptive strike and go on the offensive in the north. And we know that the Israelis are able to fly planes all the way over to Beirut and everything. So as far as air dominance goes, while we are you know, perhaps hopeful that maybe Hezbollah has obtained some high-level air defense, that's the best we can hope for. It's not like they'd be launching aircraft. That's just not on the cards right now. So that's where the Israelis have total domination, which again, that's while they may be stretched thin between Hamas and then the Red Sea, which we're going to talk about now, and then of course the possible northern front, again, with those with these carriers in the in the Red Sea and in the eastern Mediterranean, we know where the US and the, the global superpower stands. But regarding that Red Sea situation, the Eisenhower is now in the Red Sea. It left the Ford in the eastern Mediterranean, is now in the Red Sea, supposedly to prevent attacks on Israel from that direction. And the Houthis, who are the main dominators of the Red Sea right now, they actually managed to shoot down an American MQ-9 drone, if I'm reading this correctly, Dimitri. Yeah, pretty, you know, we keep mentioning the Houthis, but they, they are coming out as these, like, um, and I mean, it's it's a it's a bizarre analogy here, and I'm not trying to seem racist, but in terms of, like, f- folklore, it does seem like the Ewoks are like the Tusken Raiders of sorts, like, literally underfunded, not recognized by literally anybody or any country whatsoever, including, like, I believe Iran doesn't even recognize Houthi authority, but the Houthis literally um, self-proclaimed, the only country on Earth or self-proclaimed state that has announced war on Israel is shooting down American drones, and these are, as we mentioned, MQ-9 Reaper drones worth 30 to 40 million dollars this is american us dollars taxpayer dollars being wasted on flying these gigantic drones with 20 meter wingspans which can carry up to 1.7 tons of explosive and missiles these are the laser guys guided missiles these are the missiles that when you know when they talk about obama killing kids in the middle east and blowing up afghanistan villages these are the drones they use these reaper drones which essentially are these are probably some of the deadliest drones the united united states military has and i'm not even a drone expert it's just very visually these are scary things right these are like modern day these big eagles which just take out everything and this drone was flying over houthi territory near the red sea and the houthis just shot it down and down it goes and this has been officially like announced by mainstream media bbc politico 
uh, Associated Press and naturally Al Jazeera as well has announced this. So I think it's already proven that the Houthis have uh, essentially taken out the first American target. So frankly, you know, again, it's like, what are the American, what are American troops, what is American technology doing in this part of the world besides defending its greatest ally? And naturally the Eisenhower moving into the Red Sea, another potential liability, not just for the American people, but for world peace in general, because we all know what would happen if the Eisenhower was to be maybe shot by, who knows, some sort of uh, African rebel or an Egyptian or, you know, or a Houthi, you know, member of their militia, you know, it could cause potential escalation. And we've all seen how American, the American deep state acts when, the, you know, things are carried out in certain ways that we will remember Iraq and Afghanistan. So yeah, this is this is kind of very concerning, the fact that the they're flying these drones so close to Houthi territory. And I mean, it's a good reference because the last time we saw a drone, like a Reaper drone of this capacity dropped was by the Russian uh, air, air Force when they flew two, jet, two fighter planes over it and they spilled oil. Remember, they just like sprayed it with petrol and it fell into the sea in the Black Sea. And um, that was a funny story from March of this year. But yeah, naturally a big victory for the Houthis who, and the Americans like continuing to escalate in the Red Sea. Naturally, the entire escalation of that Middle Eastern conflict, that naturally uh, revolves around this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we do see the Egyptians, as we said, they were very um, agitated by the fact that the refugees are right on their border. At this point, no Palestinian, so native Palestinian slash Israeli refugees who have, so is Passports of Israel or passports of Palestine are not able to actually get across the border to Egypt. Egypt only allows dual citizens actually to leave the Gaza Strip. So Egypt is very, very tense at the moment. And the Israeli prime minister actually visited Iran recently. And they, you know, together with the Iranian leaders, they've condemned the international community for not responding you know, adequately enough to this refugee um, humanitarian crisis. So very interestingly, it, it, Egypt in a way, which is, you know, it's a strong ally of the United States and Israel, but still collaborating with Iran because it understands the threats to Egyptian sovereignty actually lie in the fact that there are millions of refugees right on its border. And Israel might use those refugees in order to, you know, win some potential uh, political victories in the Sinai Peninsula. Who knows what the end game is here for Netanyahu and his um, plans for Egypt and the Sinai. So we're not really sure there, but um, definitely there's a lot of stress happening here. And naturally this kind of extends into the Jordan, which Jordan for the first time, the Kingdom of Jordan has expressed a lot of concern over the Palestinian issue in Gaza. And Jordan has officially airdropped medical aid for the into the Gaza Strip. This was sanctioned by Israel. So they allowed these big um, crates full of medicine to be dropped over the Gaza Strip by the Jordanian Air Force. So this was like really you know planned by the king. And naturally, I don't know if we spoke about this last week, Conrad, but I mean, people really need to appreciate that the Queen of Jordan is an ethnic Palestinian woman. So um, the Queen Consort and the Crown Prince of Jordan, who's I think at this point 33 years of age, Hussein, uh, Prince Hussein, he's actually half he's a half Palestinian. So in fact, the the future heir to the Hashemite throne, and I guess he's an official descendant of Prophet Muhammad of Islam of the Muslim religion, is uh, also partially Palestinian. So there is that lineage that I guess is that the Jordanians do understand, and they have to keep. You know, they have to keep these relations, and at least they have to keep this sort of virtue amongst themselves. They can't completely betray their Sunni brothers in the Gaza Strip. So I think it's very interesting seeing the Jordanians kind of twist and turn in order to, you know, on one hand, not betray their Israeli allies, on the other hand, not betray their Sunni Muslim religion here. Yeah, I believe the Palestinian Queen of Jordan has been doing a bit of a PR campaign going on, a media campaign to advocate for the Palestinians and whatnot. And, you know, she's she's good optics, we could put it that way. So I think it's... Uh, it's, I think it's a it's a good idea, I guess. But I think the interesting when you talk about Jordan and Egypt, uh, Netanyahu recently said that he envisions a total Israeli occupation of the Gaza Strip in the aftermath of this. And Egypt responded that that was absolutely unacceptable. And again, 
I'm not sure if I really care about what Egypt says is unacceptable at this point. They say pushing the Palestinians out was unacceptable. It's definitely still going to happen. They say Israeli occupation is unacceptable. Like, obviously, like, at a certain level, all of these countries, especially countries like the UAE, which aren't even, they've just gone full shill, but these other countries that are trying to placate their populations, like, you have to recognize the rhetoric is strong because they actually can't do anything in certain cases. They can't do anything, so they have to give the strong rhetoric so their people don't, you know, drag them out to the street and Qaddafi them, basically. And, of course, we see Turkey. The head imam of Turkey is literally openly supporting Hamas, saying he wishes Hamas absolute victory in the battle against the Israelis. And that's a, this is an imam that has jurisdiction over like 150,000 like, like mosques in Islamic communities across Turkey. So this is, you know, this is a very relevant person. And as far as, you know, the, the, the actual situation where the Palestinians are going to end up, it's still very much in flux because as of right now, Gaza City is still surrounded. But we, we all remember the leaked plans, Israel plans to push them out and push fully into the south as well. So... It, it it's really shows you why even Donald Trump, who, you know, is a loyal ally of Israel, would say that Israel needs to really improve its PR because, as he said, the rest of the world is kicking their ass in that regard. And it's really not looking good for them. And, you know, if you know how Trump talks about these things, you know what he really means by that, which is like, what's going on, Jews? Like, what's what are we doing? <laughs> what, are we do what are we doing here? I think everyone's starting to see through it. But... Yeah, I mean, as far as the USS Eisenhower and the Red Sea goes, I mean, that seems like it's just there to be another another USS Maine to get blown up and then for us to go against whoever, whoever we claim to blew it up, or which in that case, we'll probably, we, we may have blown it up ourselves. But as of this point, the um, the Saudi Arabians, you know, the, the, Al, the, the Al Saud house, you know, the, the, uh, the kingdom has called, called an extraordinary Arab Islamic summit. So it appears that I don't know what the goal, I don't know if this is more placating or if they've actually decided to, you know, call some kind of council. But th this comes, of course, after Hamas, the leaders of Hamas have openly called on the Islamic world to take more extensive action to really, I guess, escalate. So, again, obviously, that makes sense why the leaders of Hamas would be calling for that as the as the as the tanks start to close in. But as for better or for worse, but from Turkey to Saudi Arabia, of course, to Iran and of course, Pakistan, the, they are still united against Israel. Yeah, that's right. And just before we leave the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because really not much has changed since the last week, besides the fact that the northern Gaza Strip is completely surrounded. So the statistics are looking quite grim, and this is like reported by multiple mainstream sources. So 16% of the Gaza Strip has been completely made unlivable. So it's completely destroyed. It's in rubble. So just keep that in mind. Over just one month of bombardment. Um, so that's 16% of all buildings, all accommodation, at least 40,000 housing units. And this is one housing unit per family as well, mind you, have been destroyed completely by the Israeli military. 28% uh, of Gaza City, which is in the northern part of the Strip now being surrounded, has been completely destroyed. So, which is crazy. And naturally, once we get to the hospitals, World Health Organization chief actually tweeted this out loud. He just said, look, the, there's a current f the fuel shortage in Gaza is so extreme that 14 out of 36 hospitals along the entire strip have been made completely unoperatable. So, and specifically, all the hospitals are at least 40% overloaded with patients. So when we do hear potentially like Israelis claiming that hospitals need to evacuate, they need to keep in mind these hospitals are literally, imagine the corridors, like in, you know, mainstream hospitals and even in Western countries are mostly, like most, most hospitals are full as it is, right? There aren't enough beds pretty much in any Western country. But this here, we have hospitals 40% over capacity, just full. There's no chance of evacuating any of them so if we hear any more stories in the coming weeks or if you do hear any stories about israelis bombing hospitals you do know these are these hospitals are full of people they're completely maxed out 
capacity just horrible really horrible statistics and you know the estimated amount of bombs like thirty-two thousand tons of american bombs uh, i mean sorry israeli bombs and naturally american bombs too given the uh lucrative donations by the uh, biden government have been dropped on the gaza strip so it's completely horrendous and i can't really blame the muslims for even placating or even attempting to generate some sort of uh, some sort of consensus around this, especially given after Nasrallah's speech, where Nasrallah kind of declared war, but sort of didn't, and he really didn't act in any capacity. And so now the Islamic world, I think, is still seeking some sort of unity. And, you know, as we've spoken before, even this conflict began, we said the main issue in the Middle East, as it's as it stands for the Muslims, was the fact that they were so disunited. And it's not just the Shiite-Sunni split, there's also the nationalist split against the Muslim Brotherhood in the Sunni community, there's the, the Turks against the Arabs, there's all of these internal conflicts, and naturally there's even the you can call it the story of the two dynasties, the Hashemites in Jordan, who you know descend from Prophet Muhammad, and then you have this, the House of Saud, as you mentioned, who have very uh, interesting roots in and of themselves, but they definitely do not claim uh, like lineage from Prophet Muhammad himself. So, again, the the Islamic world is very split in Israel. It's like it, you know it is that corrupt pot of corruption amidst all of it, which kind of spreads uh, you know, disunity, and naturally they seek to unite around you know possibly a, a common religion, but we'll see how far that goes, and maybe even the plight of the Palestinians. Well, you mentioned the hospitals, and as we're recording this, the Al-Shifa medical complex, which is one of the largest hospitals in the Gaza City area, is surrounded by the Israelis from four directions, and that includes the oceans. So I, I don't know why they're surrounding it. If anybody remembers, this was a report the Israelis claimed that this hole that entered a water tank for storage beneath the hospital was actually an entrance to a Hamas tunnel. So we, we've all seen the graphics of these supposedly that underneath these hospitals or the entire Hamas network of tunnels uh, the Israelis have not presented any evidence for that outside of completely 3D rendered animations entirely made by them. So I'm skeptical of the reason to surround this hospital outside of just the general pure demoralization terror tactics to drive these people into a tent city and anywhere else and just have them accept it to avoid a literal genocide. But yeah, at this point, it, it, we can just pray. We, we really need to hope that, of course, the U.S. doesn't get involved. But at this point, no one's condemning Netanyahu overtly for saying that they're just going to openly occupy it. Obviously, we've talked about how the Biden administration is sick of his nonsense. They would much rather see, you know, the Benny Gantz crowd take power. I think that's the blue and white coalition in Israel. But at this point, Netanyahu knows that his his head's on the chopping block when this crisis ends. So his his strategy is basically provoke war with Iran or bust, as far as I can tell. But but considering that's the exact opposite of what we're seeing with Putin and how he has handled the Ukraine crisis, I think it's a good time to talk about that because he just visited the Southern Command Center. That's right. And for those of you who remember the Southern Command Center of the Russian Federation, so we spoke about the four to five different command centers. Why I mentioned five is because one of them naturally is very new. It's near the Arctic polar region, so it's definitely not spoken about very often. But the Southern Command Center was built during the Soviet years, and it's recently come up in the media. Um, well, this year, frankly, because of the famous Prigozhin revolt, where you remember, if you, if you guys remember, on Rostov on Don, in that particular city, where the command center is actually placated right in the center of the city, Prigozhin enters and he speaks to the main Russian generals there, the deputy minister of defense, and he actually, you know, speaks to them and he claims that, look, the command center is now under the control of Wagner. But that's not really true. Prigozhin never ended up raiding the literal southern command center, but he did surround it. So this is the main, this is the same command center Putin's actually visited now, and it's responsible for essentially being the main command center and the main 
like military region directly adjacent to not just Crimea through the you know Crimean Kerch Bridge, which we hear about all the time being bombarded by Ukrainian terrorists, but also uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, and those two republics, and naturally Kherson as well. So it's a very key region for the Russian military, and also towards the south end, the same command center was responsible for these uh, two regions we keep hearing about: Dagestan, Chechnya, the uh, you know southern Caucasus adjacent to Georgia, which is potentially a NATO ally. So very very key area. If anything, this is the most tense. Hence, I guess, zone for the Russian military. And so, of course, um, you know, and it's a very kind of interesting spot, too, because this is one of the this is one of the command center once one of the command center zones which really held out against the third reich for the longest time before they began pushing in on stalingrad so even historically this entire region home of the don cossacks is very kind of historically russian it has a really militaristic setting so naturally that tradition goes all the way back so it's very symbolic with putin actually visiting this place which was i guess in his mind maybe desecrated by Prigozhin and the wagnerites doing some really weird stuff in june of this year but naturally this kind of i guess refreshes it and it's kind of like a secular recall consecration of the, of the military command center, you know, because Shoigu did visit it, but nothing really compares to Putin actually uh, visiting and giving it some sort of an air of legitimacy. So I think it's, if anything, it's like a secular sort of reconsecration, you can say. Um, and I think it's generally good that Putin's visiting these mainstream areas. We've spoken about, you know, Patriot Kirill not really uh, visiting any of the SMO zone actively at this point, and Putin actually being brave enough, as well as, the, I guess, the secular leader of Russia to visit these frontline zones. I think it means a lot, especially considering that, you know, we have seen the Kerch Bridge, which is right. So the Kerch Bridge connects the Rostov, the Rostov Oblast to Crimea, and that's been a target for Ukrainian drones, Storm Shadow missiles, which spoke about these long range, long range missiles, which maybe they can't reach Rostov on Don, but they, they can get pretty damn close. And that can, of course, naturally uh, put the president at risk. So Putin, again, very powerful sign of national unity. And naturally, look, it's the first week of November, right? And I guess we're going into the second week of November, but you have very like symbolic dates. The first of November is the, the date of uh, cor the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II. The second of November is the date of the establishment of the Russian Empire under Peter the Great. The 4th of November is the day of Russian unity when Russians liberated Moscow in 1612 from the Polish occupation. And again, 11th of November is again the date of the uh, the ending of the First World War. So again, you have these really powerful dates and Putin naturally goes right to the front line in order to show Russian national militaristic unity, which I think is a strong symbol. Yeah, no, I mean, as we speak, though, there's huge movements being made in the Donetsk region, specifically around Avdivka, Andrivka, these other areas around around this hot SMO zone that everyone's trying to get their places in order before the cold winter comes in. And and as this goes on, I mean, Russia is still striking all across the region with their missiles. And even in the Kherson region, while the Ukrainians are desperately trying to make more and more bridgeheads across the Dnieper, they have a few a few a few statements and a few little segments set up, but the Russians are able to strike them almost with impunity due to their air dominance of all of the regions. So it really doesn't seem that Ukraine is going to be able to make anything, anything that they can bring home to daddy and show the Americans like, see, look, this is what we did with what you gave us. And therefore you should give us more. I think that's unfortunately that ship has sailed for Zelensky. So we're all just waiting for the Russians to make their move at this point. But as far as Kherson goes, of course, at this point, the retreat from Kherson, I think is ringing a lot more, it rings a lot more civilizationally than the actual retreats from the from the that that actual successful Ukrainian offensive. Because while sure towns like Izium and these places are are important, it's it's they're not quite as symbolic as a place like Kherson. Yeah, I think now that we're almost right, Conrad. We're pretty much a year. It's a year anniversary since the Russians retreated from Kherson Oblast in October of last year, and 
you know, we remember that the um, Orthodox Christian militiaman and the mayor of Kherson city, uh, Kirill Stremausov, who naturally he already has a, actually a statue standing near his gravesite in Simferopol in Crimea. But of course, uh, Father Gennady, the most popular priest of Kherson, and by popular, I mean, you know, an Orthodox priest, you know, we're speaking about Kherson here. It's a very small oblast, but Father Gennady actually has a YouTube channel, which has almost has 300,000 subscribers. So it's a lot given he's only a, you know, a parish priest uh, from that oblast. And he naturally was a friend of Kirill Stremolosov, the former mayor of Kherson. He says, look, Kirill Stremolosov was an Orthodox Christian. He says, look, perhaps he was badly catechized, but he was a believing man. And he wanted the best for Russians and Orthodox Christians of Kherson. He didn't want to surrender it to the Ukrainians. And his death is remembered. He says that, look, Father Gennady is, is spoke very strongly about his former friend. And he says that, look, once we liberate Kherson from the Ukrainians, you know, it could be a year from now, could be five years from now, we're going to put a massive statue in memory of Kirill Stremolosov, who me and Conrad spoke about plenty of times. He is one of these modern, I guess you can say, right-wing, conservative, orthodox Christian heroes. Well, he'll put up a statue to him right in the center of the city as the sort of modern, this modern-day popular persona. So Father Gennady is a very popular priest on YouTube, and naturally he speaks his mind given that, you know, he has this, uh, now he lives in Russian, I guess you can say Russian Kherson, which is on the other side of the Dnieper which Ukraine doesn't control. So the Ukrainians can't necessarily assassinate him or persecute him. So Father Gennadius does have freedom to speak about what he wants on his YouTube channel and online. So uh, very, very kind of positive comments. But yeah, we do remember that retreat of Russia and you know, many saw it as a defeat, but naturally a month or two afterwards, remember the Kohovka Dam blew up and you know it was, most, it was definitely probably the Ukrainians who blew it up and that would have left the entire Russian... I guess those Russian divisions who were in Kherson stranded, and this was prior to the evacuation. Russians, Russia conducted a very elaborate evacuation of Kherson city prior to leaving in 2022, which, you know, they allowed a lot of people who, you know, didn't want to go under persecution, who didn't want to be interrogated by the Ukrainian FBI, SBU divisions to actually leave the city, and they gave, you know, at least a month for all these evacuations to take place. So I think these, this is a really kind of symbolic date. It wasn't a defeat. And Surovikin, you know, we, we did say early on that this must have been an L for him, but now, now that we're a year away from that, date. If anything, it was a very successful retreat. And naturally, we, we do see success, successful retreats in military history, especially Russian history. You can remember the Napoleonic Wars um, and things like that. So I think it was definitely the, the correct move to make. And Father Gennady agrees with this, and I think most people are very grateful. And funny enough, a lot of the priests and bishops actually, actually who left Ukrainian occupied Kherson and you know who who would have gone under Ukrainian persecution very shortly that there most of them are actually living in Crimea today. And the governor of the Kherson Oblast, him you know of Vladimir Saldo, who you know we speak about and sometimes he actually visited the Patriarch this week a few days ago. He visited the Patriarch's palace in Moscow and he had a personal um, conversation with the Patriarch and spoke about how he could improve Orthodoxy in his region. So again, the governor Governor of the Kherson Oblast, despite it being literally under this in the state of constant warfare, Ukrainians have crossed the Dnieper and they're on the eastern side of the Dnieper. There's a real risk for Kherson, the people of Kherson and the Orthodox Christians living there from Ukrainian invasion. And the Ukrainians are literally on the Russian side of the river. So, you know, this is probably why an extraordinary law has come into power in the entire oblast. And this is like, I guess, a very important comment that after 8 p.m., uh, there was a, a military, you can say a militaristic Hot, uh, curfew. So, and, to, and so essentially, in, nobody's allowed to come out of their homes. These are civilians, essentially, after eight o'clock at night, which seems really strict. But I think the Russian forces in the Kherson Oblast are really worried about Ukrainian subversive forces as well as spies and things of that nature actually operating in that region. So, at the moment, incredibly tense oblast. And, you know, we pray for all the people involved here. Um, you know, naturally, it's probably one of the main targets of the Ukrainian military at the moment. So, definitely very involved.
I mean, Kherson Oblast, the true birth of, of the Third Rome in some capacity as far as the baptism of, of the Russian people goes. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact that so many are living in Crimea and that Stremusov, you know, his grave is in Crimea, this really ties into something we want to talk about this week, which is, we talked about it last week, which was Metropolitan Tikhon's, you know, big moves in Crimea to to start to, you know, he, he's come in and, you know, he's a, he's a high-ranking official in the Russian church and they're really moving against abortion there. And it's really important to contrast this with, sure, people in America are people in the West, you know, when they encounter someone who might identify as a Russophile or understands the civilizational nature of the conflict right now between Russia and the West and views it as, as a key part of Christian history and as, as a relevant chapter in Christendom unfolding before us, they'll say things like, oh, well, Russia aborts a billion babies or, oh, Russia, you know, they import Tajiks or, you know, all these, these sorts of things to prove that Russia isn't based or whatever. And obviously we don't get on this show to tell you that, oh, Russia's based, Russia's this, that, the other. We come to bring you the news and, and tell you what's going on and talk about prophecies. But at the end of the day, when you compare, and while we're very grateful for Donald Trump in getting Roe versus Wade overturned in America, we've basically achieved the best we're going to achieve with that with states like Texas, states like Idaho, these other places really banning abortions. But even states like Ohio, which at this point have become deep red, they're no longer bellwether swing states. Any Republican can win Ohio. The vast majority of Ohio voters voted to enshrine the right to an abortion in their constitution. And this is in the aftermath of the dissolution of Roe versus Wade. Whereas, look, in Russia, sure, the Soviet legacy has led to a high amount of abortions. But what we're seeing isn't just a faction of the body politic that got into power and then is imposing their anti-abortion agenda. We're seeing the theanthropic body working with state governments, working with medical institutions in a truly symphonic way to just completely reduce the number of abortions before the legislative body even gets involved. And as far as I can tell, if this is able to spread federation-wide in 40 years' time when the Duma's ready to approve a bill and send it to the president or whoever's in charge at the time, or if the constitutional monarch is ready to issue an edict banning abortion across the federation or across the empire, then the people will be ready for that. It won't be like, oh, we're suddenly stopping you know, 15 abortions a day at these hospitals from happening. No, those numbers will have already gone down, and then the, the ban will, will reflect the, the shifted mindset of the people. And this is, unfortunately, in America... There, there's some prospects that say the abortion numbers may even go up to the point where in blue states they're so compensating and people are traveling in from out of state to get abortions there that that it may not even make a numerical difference. And ultimately it will make a numerical difference in some of these states. They're so big, like here in my home state of Texas, there will of course be people that just adjust their behavior appropriately or just choose to give birth or choose to give a child up for adoption that I fully support the abortion bans. But unfortunately it does seem that the American public is not quite ready for that righteous of a stand right now at a national level, as opposed to some of these regions of Russia, which are, while it's a bit slower of process, they're, they're moving in the right direction at a civilizational, not just a legislative level. And I think on a rhetorical level, let's just remember, and like, firstly, let's just, let me just comment on, on America and some of its conservative pundits. Like I've seen Ann Coulter tweet the most obscene things like, oh, American, the right wing in America, conservatives in America shouldn't be for completely making abortion legal. Just these completely absurd takes thinking they can win elections by, you know, um, essentially siding with left wing ideas. It's just really a little bit disgusting. But returning back to Russia, I think someone like Metropolitan Tikhon pushing this idea locally in Crimea alongside the other bishops, a lot of the exiled bishops from Ukraine are actually in Crimea supporting him on this. Like the government, 
the the government of Crimea actually cannot say no to these, you know, essentially these agreements to, you know, because you're speaking to Metropolitan Tikhon, who is potentially the former spiritual father of Vladimir Putin himself, a very, so Russia is very, um, I guess, authoritarian in that sense, very much top down. Metropolitan Tikhon has spoken to Putin many, many times over the last few decades. You cannot say no to him. He enters your office, he asks for you to ban abortion and you ban it. Like there is no, like it's kind of, there's no discussion there. Uh, you cannot say no to any, when you have a title such as Metropolitan of Crimea and the, the actual word of Crimea is just associated with power, associated with Russian nationalism, associated with Russian Novorossia and the liberation of these regions from like a NATO influence, you can also claim so. Metropolitan Tikhon does have a lot of authority here, but naturally, I guess all the even the local bureaucrats of Crimea uniting under this idea that private abortion should be banned, I think is extremely powerful. And it follows, you know, in lockstep with some of the other movements we saw, and even some of the soldiers sending out videos from the front lines to to their um to their people at home actually asking for abortion to be banned across Russia. It, it may not even take 40 years. Fortunately, because, well, as I've seen some of the, the debates around abortion, actually, you know, the anti-abortion stance taken by Tsargarad and even some of these really orthodox news news stations such as Spas TV, the, the perspective they're pushing to secular people, Conrad, is very interesting. They're saying, look, oh, abortion is actually against national interests. So now we're fighting in the civilizational war and you want less Russian babies to be born. So you want, you know, essentially, you're murdering Russian boys and girls who essentially are the... You know, they're kind of taking a very interesting position, which is true, because yes, you are sacrificing Russian children to Baal, you're sacrificing them to Moloch, but you're also killing them. So you're killing more Russian kids than even the Ukrainians and NATO soldiers are killing. And that's the argument that they're making. And well, what can a Russian liberal even say to that? He'd, he'd, he'll, be mar he'll, he'll be marked as a traitor to the country, right? Because he'll be like, well, what, you don't want more Russian babies to be born, really? And so naturally, they're taking this debate to a more patriotic line of thinking, which I think a lot of folks who maybe are badly catechized in Russia will be more lenient towards. And of course, you have big movie directors too, like Nikita Mikhalkov, with almost 2 million subscribers on YouTube, filming like anti-abortion videos and directly advocating against abortion. Naturally, these these things are all having a really big impact, like I guess nationally in Russia. And let's not mask it, Russia still has a huge abortion issue. A lot of the problems with these private clinics Right, all these gynecologists and all these medical clinics around Russia is they're not reporting their numbers. So, you know, when we see numbers go down statistically, it's only because I guess public medical centers are not actually um, releasing, you know, they're releasing the numbers, their numbers are going down, but private clinics around Russia are becoming more and more popular. So, in fact, Russian men and women are actually aborting their children in these private clinics more than the public ones. So, again, it's very kind of detrimental. And I think a really powerful message that actually came out from one of actually an abortionist herself, right? This is, I mean, this story really touched me. Conrad, when Dr. Irene Belavina, she is the niece of St. Tikhon Belavin, the first patriarch of Russia, St. Tikhon. So the new martyr, she's his niece, she's 81 years old, and she's actually sent out this message to all these Russian media sources claiming that, look, she's about to pass away and she wants to make a public confession. And she confesses to, she's she's been a doctor for 51 years since she was like in her 20s. And she says that at times her and her fellow gynecologist aborted at least 15 babies a day in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And she claims that, look, she makes this call of confession. She says, I confess that I, I've worked as a gynecologist, as a medical expert for all these years. And even though I was a niece of Patriarch Tikhon, I still betrayed my faith and, you know, committed all these acts as a medical professional. She basically comes out with this big confession and she says, my fellow doctors and surgeons and gynecologists around Russia, you need to stop murdering babies. It, it is murder. And I confess and may God have mercy on my soul as I'm about to pass away and die at this late age. 
it's very um touching and she did ask actually for everyone to pray for her and she says you know, she does, doesn't believe she deserves salvation so she asks everyone to have mercy on her and it's very very sad because again like somebody like her who definitely had a had a played a part in the murder of children as, as a medical professional you can I, I think we should all keep Irene alive in our prayers I mean Dr. Irene naturally she's uh, you know, not just a relative of a saint but of course it's really a sinful person the person who's come out at the end of their life and has actually asked people people to pray for her. So I think very interesting story that's come out this week again uh, amidst all of this anti-abortion rhetoric we see in the Russian media. You know, someone very notable actually comes out and calls for abortion to stop on a national level. I think it's a very powerful testament. Yeah, and just for, again, not that this is a show directed at refuting these people because I don't think they're relevant, but these people that are like kind of very anti-Russian, anti-Orthodox, anti-civilizational in that aspect, they don't see that is a viable path they think it whatever their perspective being against it and some whatever larp that they're they're holding on to just recognize this is a state that has empowered their their christian institutional body the russian orthodox church where their head of state is actively calling for less immigration from explicitly non-white allied regions of the country because of their cultural replacement going on that is ultimately going to not be sustainable and would lead to a non-Christian, non-European facing population at the same time as one of his right-hand people is going to one of the most prominently ethnically Russian iconic regions in the midst of a war zone, actively preventing the murder of, of Russian children. This this idea that this is somehow a, a third worldist, you know, religious psyop to to harm the white race or to harm the European people or something like this. This is this is just total nonsense that, that doesn't correlate with reality. I don't know any other religious leader in the world that is standing as civilizationally strong alongside his ethnos and alongside his people as, as the bishops of the Russian Orthodox Church right now are as they're facing total onslaught from from the globalist Zog empire. So I think we can just fully put that those types of talking points to bed at this point. But it's really encouraging to see. And the fact that, again, you know, Crimea is... People think of Crimean Tatars, but there's no Tatars there anymore at all. They all either live in Tatarstan or they just moved to Turkey. So th at this point, Crimea is fully Russian, and they have a, a Russian nationalist bishop who is leading them to the civilizational fore. And I've talked to priests about this, like people in Amer American priests, people in all sorts of different archdioceses have talked about how if you were a young man, I mean, I think if I was a young man in Russia, I'd want nothing more than to move to Crimea or to move to Kherson, to this new frontier and reinforce the, the civilization that has, has reasserted itself there and to make sure that there's no backsliding and not nonsense and and to build up a life there i think that's something that someone like gabriel deroshan has seen and recognized and is that's the type of thing that can lead to the vitality of a people something that something for people to look forward to a, a sort of a new metaphysical frontier in this case also physical for them to go and embrace that's something that unfortunately in the west i don't see any um i don't see any version of that coming to the fore to save us from the milieu we're in right now unfortunately but that's that's what we pray for, right? But in that same regard, the the Ukrainian church and the Ukrainian state, which at this point is 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 one U.S. directive, one U.S. phone call to Putin away from ceasing to exist, uh, they have decided to continue to persecute the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and we've we've posted some videos on our Twitter that show some pretty egregious stuff. But it, they continue. They I don't. They haven't made the connection yet that maybe they'd do slightly better in the war if they didn't do this nonsense. Yeah, naturally, like, uh, you know, siding with the devil and demonic forces doesn't actually benefit you in the long term, perhaps like short term, it might induce some uh, moral sort of, uh, not, not not moral, but morale into your troops, like some of these neo-pagan neo divisions, but long term, of course, the 
definitely losing the benefit of having God's grace upon them. And we see this uh, really disgusting imagery from actually the Holy Ascension Banshan Monastery in the Chernovitskaya Diocese. And the Chernovitskaya Diocese is just right on the right on the border of Ukraine and Transnistria. So we spoke about this Romanian region, which the Romanians claim as their own. And this diocese is right there on the border there, so in far western Ukraine. And the, and the Banshan Monastery was only established in 1994 by a metropolitan Longin himself when he was just a monk. So can you imagine? So this monastery is actually younger than even the Vaushan monastery established uh, by you know Abbot Trophon and his predecessor. So we have like a monastery which is extremely young, and now what do we see online? We see Ukrainian troops, literally military personnel with machine guns surrounding the monastery. They're conducting a full-on search. And the Ascension Monastery up on Chen, it's actually very beautiful. It's it's only 29 years old, so and it's built in a very like classical Russian-Ukrainian style. So it's very, it looks like it's several hundreds years old. It could have been built during the Russian Empire, but it's only 29 years old and surrounded by troops. And Metropolitan Longin actually standing outside of the monastery asking them not to desecrate it. Like, troops, can you not walk into the church with machine guns? Can you not like break any icons, you know, tear books? apart looking for you know anti-ukrainian propaganda or whatever else they're looking for in there so it's just a horrific imagery and metropolitan longan's quote here is the bunch in monastery was attacked so he's talking to the media so he's being interviewed right outside of the monastery and he's like hundreds of military men with machine guns sbu officers attacked us like we were bandits they scared all of our children surrounded everything we had they, they took everything we had the state does not care about us about our children and he says my personal children he says are on the front line 10 sons of mine are there and four of them are already disabled through military combat. So Metropolitan Longin actually states that, look, his own children were conscripted into military conflict. You know, we spoke about the, the son of a priest who was killed on the front lines last week. But again, even the relatives of bishops, and when he says my children, I think he means probably him being a bishop, probably his spiritual children, right? His godchildren, things of this nature, but still. Well, it's even deeper than that. Metropolitan Longin has legally adopted over 400 disabled children and orphans across Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and Ukrainian men surrounding this monastery on this in this really contentious region, it's just demonic, right? And naturally, this story continues. Like, Metropolitan Longin, he, this is his monastery he built from scratch, right? So he built it from the ground up. It had no, there was no monastery in this region prior to him. And now it's being completely desecrated by Ukrainian SBU troops, you know, police officers. It's just, it's disgusting. And the desecration continues, so it doesn't just end there this week, naturally. Uh, Metropolitan Theodosius, as we mentioned of Cherkasy last week, he was placed under house arrest for another two months. So they have an electric, you know, not electric, sort of digital bracelet stuck to his stuck to his foot. He's not allowed to leave his house. He's under house arrest like Metropolitan Paul of the Kiev Picharis Caves, not in a literal prison like Metropolitan Jonathan, but still under house arrest, not able to visit his any priest in his diocese, etc. And He's made an announcement to all of his priests in in the Cherkasy diocese that if troops begin entering your church and schismatics heretics begin capturing your parishes, and he's made this, this is a public announcement, he says, do not hesitate, take your parishes anti-mincion, so the anti-mince, and run to serve liturgy in the forests. Okay, so this is his official statement to his priests of the diocese, which he, he runs over, I believe, he administers close to 400 priests in his region. And this is like, this, these are numbers even, say, even if we take into account at least like 50 or 100 priests have gone into schism. So it's a large cohort of parishes that he looks after and he caters to. And he says that, look, once they begin entering into, and I mean, the antimension, let's just take it into account. The antimension is that a blessed cloth, which is laid on the altar table in the altar, like people may have not seen it in front, but if you've served in the altar, you've definitely seen it. It's unfolded during the liturgy and it usually has made out of linen or silk. And it's tip, and of course has the relics of a Christian Orthodox martyr uh, sewn into it, and on this cloth, uh, the the whole you know, the, the um 
communion is consecrated, right? Every service. And so this, uh, without the Santi Mincion, of course, communion cannot be prepared by an Orthodox priest or a bishop. And funny enough, like this, like the, the analogy here between the Ukrainian modern state and like the Bolshevik persecution period is that during the Soviet times, it got so extreme, like the Solovki monastery and all these gulags that the priests, they would smuggle in bread, wine over a long period of months, right? At a time, they would somehow bribe the guards. They would somehow get bread, wine, as well as they would get an antimension into the prison cells. And what they would do is, and this, you could read this in the lives of saints, they would lay the antimension on the chest of a deacon or a priest or a bishop who would soon be either martyred or, or he's already a confessor, he's beaten and starved by the Bolsheviks. They would lay the antimension on his chest and they would serve because they all, they're all clergymen. They all know the liturgy off by heart. They would serve the liturgy there in the prison cell and actually prepare. They would have a cup and they would prepare communion on the chest of this priest. There's the altar table, right? Through through the antimension. So very powerful. This is what happens in the state of like absolute degenerate persecution, like in the Soviet era. But in Ukraine, we're seeing very similar things. So he's just saying, take the antimension, run into the forests. Don't give the antimension to the heretics. Don't give it to the schismatics. Don't, least of all, don't give it to the Ukrainian police officers. This, this cloth is blessed and it shouldn't fall into the hands of the servants of the devil, I think. And again, it's powerful testament from one of the most persecuted bishops of our time and yeah it's just a very apocalyptic imagery coming out of ukraine yeah i mean we saw this video of we like you talked about them fleeing to the woods to serve the service I mean, we have seen videos of this entire parishes have filmed themselves serving liturgy in the woods after their locks have been changed after they've been driven out after some of them have been beaten and then hundreds of them compared to you know the few people that have collaborated with the ukrainian satanists hundreds of these parishioners are going out to the woods to celebrate the liturgy and i imagine that some of these people at this point are starting to feel the joy of what it feels like to suffer for Christ. And I can't even begin to understand what it would feel like to be like that. I live in the United States and I'm a, and I'm a wealthy, privileged person. But I think many of them are starting to understand the joy of confessorship, which I hope can reap good spiritual fruits. But unfortunately, it seems that the, the Ukrainian government is just insistent on killing more and more young Orthodox men. I mean, even Elon Musk is like Zelensky. Stop sending Ukrainian youths to their deaths. He said that you know, any any further offenses are going to lead to massive casualties and that history will not be kind to Zelensky if he doesn't start to heed this here. So even Elon Musk understands the situation is dire and that these people need to need to rein themselves in. But yeah, I mean, I believe you mentioned Metropolitan Jonathan. I believe he's even the spiritual father of Father Gennady you were talking about earlier with with Stremousov. So these the, the, the spiritual links run run deep here. But I think now that we've fully covered, we actually probably should talk about the forensic testing going on at the Kiev Pachersk Lavra. But after that, we'll move on to, to continental Europe. Yeah, of course, the Kiev Pachersk Lavra at the moment is officially you know a place of tourism for Ukraine. The Ministry of Culture has taken the entire monastery under its care, and it has announced, the Minister of Culture of Ukraine has announced that, look, within six months, they can conduct forensic and DNA testing on the relics of all the saints in the Kiev Pichars caves, because they want to find out, well, are these relics genuine? Do they actually go back to the, you know, to the 12th or the 13th or 15th century, respectively? You know, are they, you know, are these saints actually, these saint, saintly relics actually real? Like, I mean, this is, this is like as Bolshevik and as demonic as it can get, right? We have literal scientific secular experts probably belonging to them boys, or who knows what kind of clans and groups like these literal medical experts who used to you know, vaccinate us are literally taking the relics and gonna, they're going to be testing them. And so this is just, I mean, desecration of the highest to the highest extent. Naturally, they're not asking any bishops for permission. None of the caretakers of the monastery are consenting to this, but they will be taking these relics and conducting forensic experiments on them, probably cutting them apart, things of this nature, really taking samples 
you know, just really demonic. And it does, you know, me and Conrad were speaking about this earlier, but there was examples of, you know, things like this happening in the past. And even even the Third Reich Nazis actually respected the relics a little bit more. So one of the Nazi SS officers was walking around the Kiev Picharis caves during the Third Reich occupation of Kiev after Operation Barbarossa. And as he was walking around the dark caves at night, just kind of patrolling, he just, you know, he thought to himself, well, these like relics of dead bodies, I wonder what all this means. And he took his pistol and stupidly enough, he shot the hand of one of the saints. Like just shot it into the relic, and the hand of the saint began bleeding blood, as if he just, as if he just shot a living person. And after that, they sealed the Kiev Picharis caves. The, the Nazis did, and they never disturbed them again. Yet we here see Ukrainians doing even that, even going beyond, beyond you know what the Third Reich was even doing. Who you know, in, in and of themselves, the SS troops are very superstitious, so they would never, you know, kind of cross certain boundaries. But even, even you see the modern Ukrainian government actually going beyond that. To, and you know we, we see even more desecration of the Kiev Picharis caves. Other the other big viral story of the week was uh, a Ukrainian witch actually filmed a TikTok dance and it went completely viral. A little Orthodox Christians actually saw it. She danced in the refectory church of the Kiev Picharis caves. And what's really striking about this particular clip, Conrad, is the fact that the church itself was empty. Which usually this church, the Trapeza Church of the Kiev Picharis monastery, is actually full of people because it stands open twenty four seven, regardless if there's a service or memorial or liturgy happening inside. It's always open to people, and people always come in, kiss the icons, venerate it. But in this clip, the witch is dancing in the middle of the church. She's you know just singing a Ukrainian song. And the church is empty, and this kind of you know harkens back to the abomination of desolation type feeling. This and this is the same church, mind you, earlier this year. Remember in March when the monks were being kicked out, and the and the crosses on top of the church became you know darkened in this like big, I guess this this omen of persecution that was happening. This like miracle occurred. The crosses on top of the church became dark. This is that same church. Now there's a witch dancing amongst. I mean, this is just this is about as bad as it can get. And it's this same church where uh, Prime Minister Pyotr Stolypian in 1911 was shot by a Jewish terrorist in right in front of St. Nicholas II and, you know, the last prime minister of Russia. And I mean, it kind of the imagery is really bad. Naturally, Ukraine is going down a very dark path. And so in contrast to the Russian Federation, we do see kind of like exactly who's improving and who's going down in the in the wrong direction, you could say. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the fact that these it's 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 like so if this Ukraine isn't even technically a communist state, but this is just like a total communist level weird materialist action that they're undergoing with these with these relics that again I can only assume is the result of being demonically influenced. But but to move away from from Ukraine at this point to see some pretty crazy stuff going on on the continent and in even Western Europe, uh, Spain right now. To put a long story short, the the leading socialist left-wing party in Spain was didn't do very well in the government, but they were basically able to ally with all of the left-wing separatist parties in Spain, which, for those who don't know, all of the separatist parties from Catalan and the Basque region most explicitly are like communists, basically leftovers from the Spanish Civil War that fought against Franco and the Falange and the Raquette and, you know, the Catholic nationalists. And at this point, they were able to, the socialist, the central government was able to form this coalition alliance with these left-wing groups. And he was basically, part of this was eliminating all of the punishments and the laws that in the past few years, I can't remember when exactly, back in 2017, 2018, the Catalonians were holding illegal referendums, voting on independence, and the Spanish sent in the central government and broke down the the doors, stole the ballot boxes, beat people holding up the elections, and arrested the leaders of these Catalan parties. And at this point, socialist government is now like trying to abolish the laws against the separatist stuff, try to release all these people that have been punished completely, unsanction them, give them free reign to just lead as many separatist movements as they want, basically, in return for restoring them to power in Madrid. And of course, for those that don't know, in Spain, the main perspective from the right wing is full Spanish unionism, complete anti-separatism, the Francoist 
position. That's why right-wingers in France wave the actual Spanish flag. Like, it's considered a right-wing symbol, even though Spain itself is like a left-wing country, because the left-wing perspective is separatist. So this is why Spain is one of the strongest supporters of Serbia against the Kosovo issue, because they know that Serbia will stand strong with them against Catalonia and the Basque regions. Uh, separating and there's been an incre- I don't know if we're going to see an increase in terrorism but sometimes those regions do flare up and there's Basque and Catalan bombings and as of now in the aftermath of this what the right wingers are describing as a coup basically of overthrowing the basically overthrowing the Spanish Union throwing open the the gates to these secessionists the the leaders of the Vox party which is the main right wing party in Spain that's risen up recently again before a few years ago when this party started there was no right wing party in Spain at all really and they're calling for total mobilization in the street and it's been working i mean Spain has a real right wing underground and they they've mobilized at the beginning of this Isabel Peralta who is a Spanish right wing activist she's like a young woman but she you know she got on top of this this thing is throws up a Roman salute and everybody follows suit and then they start throwing stuff at, at the police. It's like full on, you know, Spain in many ways is the exception to the, the post-war consensus against right-wing street activism because Spain didn't fight in World War II. They maintained their right-wing dictator up into the 1970s. So while they are a far-left socialist feminist country, the, the right-wing resistance, which is fostered culturally underground, is still very much reactionary and never really fell to like the liberal center-right memes. But in the midst of all of this, one of the former founders of Vox, and I'm going to look up his name in a second, but he was actually shot in the face and he's actually going to be okay, but that really helped mobilize. He was shot in the face by some leftist black bloc people and this really helped mobilize the right wing in Spain to get into the streets right now and they are, have even won some allies in the police unions in Spain. We already we talked about this a lot when the French riots, race war thing went down and the French police unions really asserted themselves and used their leverage to to get power and to gain benefits. Seems that the Spanish gendarmerie, which is, you know, like their equivalent, you know, their federal police and everything are starting to sympathize with the right wing and the against these separatists. And then the the interior, like the Spanish CIA are then like, we're against this. So huge civil war basically brewing in Spain right now on the Iberian Peninsula. It's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think what's what's really promising and uh, you know coming out of a conflict such as this, and then naturally civil war is never a good thing. But I guess in the case of Spain, Spain being one of the most progressive countries in all of Europe, given the fact that it had this like very powerful Catholic history, I guess. It, firstly, Spain was in opposition to not not only did it spread Catholicism over the you know over the New World and South America, Central America, things of this nature, but it also held held fast against the Freemasonic Napoleonic France very early in its history. And then of course, it, Spain fought against the Spain fought against the communists, it fought against liberal rules a foot against all these powerful, I guess, globalist influence forces. And finally, it was conquered after the death of Franco and the reestablishment of, you know, reestablishment of a constitutional monarchy, which probably never should have been constitutional in the first place. So Spanish history is actually a history of resisting liberalism, even from a Catholic perspective, but naturally actually falling eventually to it, showing, I think it's probably an example of, well, Roman Catholicism, me and Conrad being Orthodox Christians, we don't see Roman Catholicism as a true sort of, a true reflection of the true Christianity, right? It does have its really internal flaws, and I'm not going to outright say it's it's heretical as it is, but for those of you in the Roman Catholic Church, Spain, actually the study of Spanish nationalism, Spanish conservatism, and its fall in the late 20th century is a good example of how Roman Catholicism perhaps doesn't have an enough, it doesn't have the energy and the oomph to it in order to even garner a social nationalist rebirth. I think Spain is a great example, being even one of the first, you can say one of the most Catholic countries in all of Europe, and also one of the first countries to legalize, you know, not just sodomy, but also gay marriage. I think they legalized it in 2005, which was even before, this was during the during the years of George Bush, and this is like 
almost during the Iraq war, you can say, literally. So like very early on, Spain has definitely fallen. And now these internal conflicts between the left and the right wing, again, maybe they'll bring some sort of genuine fruits of perhaps some some sort of national penitence, you could say. Maybe there will be some positive positivity coming out of this uh, particular degeneracy that Spain has fallen into over the last few decades. So I definitely don't think, like, naturally all conflict comes from the devil, but I do think maybe providentially it, it is up to the Spanish right wing to actually wake up finally and make make its claim back on the land that it has conquered back during the Reconquista over, over you know, 500 years from the Islamic horses, you know, throughout its history. I think that is the story. It's a new Reconquista, but now not from the Muslims, it's from the liberals, and maybe it's beginning now before our very eyes. I mean, I mentioned Isabel Medina Peralta. She gave a whole speech about how the enemy of Spain is El Judío. I'll let you look up the translation on that so I don't get banned on here. But the man that was shot was Alejo Vidal Cuadras. He was a Catalan founder of, of a Vox party. So he was probably really leaning into the anti-separatist nature if he's a conservative Spanish a politician from the Catalan region. I'm sure he saw the overt just Marxism of of these separatist groups. So, and again, there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of the Israel-Palestine dialectic with the far left kind of thing going on, but it's really not at the forefront right now in Spain. The separatist issue has really come to the fore as well as some of the feminist gender stuff because Spain is, again, with the far left, like Dimitri just said, with some of that stuff went really far. But at the end of the day, there's still a huge cultural resistance to it, especially in the hinterlands. And even like Spain also has a huge right-wing presence in cities like Madrid. So it's not really analogous exactly to some of these Western situations like in America and the Anglosphere, you know, London, New York, DC, this is totally occupied territory. But in Spain, they can actually mobilize people to get out in the streets and fight the police in places like Madrid. So it, it's really a different ball game over in Spain, especially even compared to places like Germany, where like, you know, the entire German Federation is basically designed to prevent anybody from being sympathetic to Tiny Mustache Man or even remotely thinking about, I guess, a nationalist identity for the German people in any regard. That's like basically the entire purpose of, of like the German constitution is currently is to prevent anything like that from, from happening. But the AFD is still is still rising you know, they may be arresting their, their young state officials three days before they take office because supposedly their neighbors heard them say nice things about Hitler. But at the end of the day, 40% of the AFD, part of the, you know, Bjorn Hakka wing, who's a state local representative, but 40% of the AFD is said to be kind of his wing and they are full on, you know, they don't say it outright because it's illegal, but, you know, they, they fully know the score, let's put it that way. And the Germans are terrified. They recognize that if an election comes up, these people are going to possibly get into power. So they're like, uh, what do we do? Uh, let's talk about deporting millions of brown people. How about that? So they're talking, of course, Olaf Scholz is talking about that. Why? Of course, because they haven't sworn allegiance to Israel. So, of course, that shows that this whole thing is without teeth. And I doubt any significant amount of foreigners will be leaving Germany. But as, you know, elections get closer and closer... These people are going to do everything they can to prevent... I mean, straight up, if a right-wing coalition of any kind forms a true majority in a coalition and leadership and elects a prime minister in Germany and chancellors and whatnot, at a certain level, some of these, you know, quote-unquote checks and balances are just going to be like, yeah, this is illegal, and just overthrow it out. Like, And that will have to... At that, that point, the, the ball is going to be in the court of the German people, and that's a country of 90 million high IQ people that you got to make a choice. Are you going to live in slavery in the dirt? Are you going to... Yeah, you gotta do something about it, and I'm not implying anything by that. It's just at a certain level, if your entire country was had you had a constitution written for you by foreigners, by by alien people that hate you, designed to prevent you from ever developing a national consciousness, then that needs to be thrown in the garbage sooner rather than later. And that may involve you know, that may involve some Lord Royce, you know, crypto royalist storming of the Reichstag. And I say that as a proud 
Texan American German that maybe they can free themselves from from this from this total nonsense. But you know, we've talked about Spain, we've talked about Germany, but even in the midst of all of this, Macron has decided that that he wants to be the center of of nonsensical attention somehow. Yeah, like you know, Germany being one of the pillars of the European Union, and naturally France being the other pillar. Like, what's happening in France amidst all these like stirrings of the right wing? Well, Macron, of course, heads to the headquarters of free of French Freemasonry, the Grand Orient de France Parisian headquarters, and which is and he celebrates 250 years of Freemasonry in France officially, and gives a very powerful speech. This happened on the 8th of November, Wednesday, where Macron discusses very openly legalizing euthanasia. This is at the Free Masonic headquarters. Just think about it. Like, it's very, it's not even conspiracy logical in this sense it's just out in the open he speaks about gay marriage he speaks about the fact that for the french people including the church and the state although they are separated they need to be united on the issue of gay marriage he doesn't say whether he's pro or against but naturally you do need to understand like macron and his sort of background so it's very concerning and of course he speaks about the need amongst you know him and his freemasonic high degree friends he does say there needs to be a tolerance of both the muslims given the recent french french riots naturally in france of course he needs to cater to his islamic audience and islamic voter base and he does say naturally tolerance towards the jews needs to be upheld at all costs and he says france this is a quote france will be ruthless against anti-semitism says macron at the uh, grand orient of france freemasonic center so i mean if we're speaking about you know and i'm not you know, don't quote me, but the you know, Judeo-Masonic connections, you know, I don't think it gets any more obvious than Macron giving a speech here about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the headquarters of probably the most corrupt organization in European history, you can say at this point, uh, naturally very negative. And Macron, you know, he, he does give off this vibe of like an inside controlled guy. And all of his previous aspirations, as we mentioned, him trying to attend the BRICS summit and getting rejected and him trying to you know portray himself as a national French leader, we do need to not forget this man is probably a Freemason himself. He is a member of whatever lodge he attends in France. He's pretty much an inside guy. He's an all he's an all time globalist, and we won't find any hope of the sort of him contributing to the multipolar world from some sort of based French perspective. This guy is completely bored and paid for. And I mean, the the fruits, the evidence came out this week, right? When he basically went to essentially a pagan temple and he gave a very powerful speech about the, like the most disgusting subjects, right? The euthanasia, gay marriage, like. You know, things like that. I mean, it's just, it doesn't get more obvious than what Macron has spoken about here. Sure, yeah. He may have told Israel to stop killing children, but that's, again, just because you've got a bajillion Muslims in your country that if you if you don't tread those waters lightly, they'll come and cut your head off. So you've got, you've got to be careful in this situation right now. But before we move on to some Balkan issues, we, we've talked about how in the past, supposedly the, the Estonians are trying to accuse the Chinese of dredging their anchor and severing some of their, their cables and pipelines. In this past week, that issue has escalated. The Russians apparently have had one of their fiber optic cables severed, and there's other pipelines taking damage. I'm starting to wonder, like, is this is there some rogue, like, American intel- American boat or something, or Ukrainian-operated boat in the Baltic Sea just wreaking havoc? I'm wondering what the situation is there. Yeah, and of course, these cables, right, they were connecting St. Petersburg to Kaliningrad, which is former Konigsberg, the capital of the Prussians. And this particular Kaliningrad region is physically disconnected from Russia and even from Belarus. So it is like an, a Russian island amidst uh, amidst the sea of Baltic enemies and, and Germany. So Russia really feels strongly like as a, this is like its furthest Western outpost in the right on the coast of the Baltic Sea. And suddenly this telecommunication cable is damaged and it's, you know, a thousand kilometers long. It's, it's incredibly like it connects all these uh, different communications across the Baltic Sea. 
And yeah, it almost it's almost as if there is this NATO predator swimming in the Baltic Sea waters, uh, affecting not just German pipelines, but also Russian pipelines and cables, things like that. And nobody can come out and actually investigate this matter. It's like, well, do these countries have navies or is anybody actually going to come out with an answer here? But now at this point, it's almost as if, again, the threats around Kaliningrad, right? We spoke about Wagner and securing the route from Belarus and Russia to Kaliningrad. These are some real threats. Kaliningrad is technically surrounded by NATO countries. So Russia's feel, they, they feel very strongly that it, this is like their furthest most outpost. It is completely, I guess, technically culturally under siege. Anybody who's been to Kaliningrad, the Bishop of Kaliningrad, the diocese there, he's very pro-Russian. So he actually announced uh, at the beginning of the SMO, he announced a free day, free day and free night fast, like a very strict fast, no food, no water at the beginning of the SMO. So he very, feels very strongly for Russia. So Kaliningrad is a very pro-Russian region, you can say, out of all the oblasts. And naturally, it being uh, affected through telecommunications, this means internet, telephone lines. This is uh, it's quite scary, I think, for the locals living there. It's uh, also, I mean, speaks to the fact that if a World War III does break out, and naturally, if Europe and NATO and Russia are involved, Kaliningrad will be one of the first countries targeted by NATO forces completely surrounded. It is um, surrounded by enemies from all sides. So, uh, you know, they feel very strongly about their national sovereignty and safety, I think, first and foremost. And this kind of threatens it, even if it's could have been an accident, could have been another, you know, so-called Hong Kong ship with its anchor hitting the cable along the sea bottom, which probably never took place. Naturally, uh, I guess we'll never find out because none of these Baltic NATO countries investigate these uh, these occurrences properly. I mean, this is just another kind of Nord Stream 2 situation waiting to happen. And the Russians, you know, they reserve the right, I guess, to respond as they wish if things don't go their way. And we know how. The U.S. used all of this to escalate, despite the fact that they obviously did it themselves. So if if somebody else does it, and no one, not like anyone's really accusing the Russians of doing this, I think it's pretty obvious that they would have a Casas Belli to possibly escalate in the in the Baltic region. Which, of course, that 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 starts to trigger NATO issues. But at a certain level, is maybe Russia's feeling confident enough to start pushing the envelope in that region because those places have given nothing but trouble to their Orthodox minorities as well as we were still suspicious that they may have been launching drone swarms at Moscow that one time. We don't know that that didn't actually come from, from Estonia, if we remember talking about that. But in the midst of all of this, the, the issues still continue to heat up in the Balkans. I want to read a fantastic, exciting quote from President of Republika Srpska, Milorad Dodik. He said, As soon as the Republic of Srpska declares its independence, 10 to 15 countries will recognize us. Among those countries are EU members, as well as other countries of the world. This issue will be discussed during my next visit to the Russian Federation. Croatia will accept this new reality and will eventually recognize us. The Croats should form Herzeg Bosnia. The Republic of Srpska will declare independence in the event that Christian Schmidt imposes law on property, which would be the complete destruction of Srpska. So this is pretty crazy. I mean, Dodik's like, yeah, we will be a new country and i'm sure orban may have told him that he would recognize serbska and maybe a few others might be interested in in supporting this and you realize this law and property that he's talking about is an attempt to for the bosnians i think to totally box serbs or serbian citizens out of properly being able to acquire and negotiate for their land so it's very much the de-serbianization of of bosnia and herzegovina going on but he's he told the croats they should form herzeg bosnia so he basically just wants to form greater serbia and then confine the bosniaks and the croats just to one state so they don't have to deal with both of them i'm sure that the implication there is that we want the serbian former serbian regions of croatia back as well so i don't know how the Croats are going to feel about that, but the Croats themselves, at least the president, has been fairly pro-Russian, so I doubt that he'll respond by going full-on pro-Bosniak. Yeah, and most of the mainstream media sources in, in Europe, around the world, which are Western, have actually claimed that, you know, Dodik as this pro-Russian, essentially, plant in Bosnia-Herzegovina, when in fact, I think, if anything, he's more of a, a right-wing local. In fact, he, you know, he served in Bosnia-Herzegovina his entire life. He has almost, besides, like, sentimentalities toward the Russian Federation, maybe Putin personally, he doesn't actually have any 
direct ties to Russia, so you can't actually claim him being some sort of external plant or like a a, a bought off leader or even like a Donald Trump type figure who you know they made up things about. So Dodik can frankly, Conrad, this message that he's finally given that he's ready ready for successionism if the authorities of Bosnia actually cross certain lines, I think is, is the first time Dodik has actually made a statement of this powerful. It's, all, it's essentially an ultimatum, which the people of Donetsk and Lugansk gave the Ukrainians early on during the Maidan, and naturally they succeeded successfully. And, you know, of course the conflict began, but could we see another Yugoslavian War 2.0, which could also involve, of course, Vucic going into Kosovo, as we've spoken about about a month ago, they've had those military, uh, you know, essentially combat operations around Kosovo, kind of approaching it from all different angles, it, it could escalate into a multi, multi-front conflict in that end. And I think, if anything, the, the actual Serbian people, the people of Bosnia, you know, Respublika Srpska, who are essentially Serbs, the Serbs of Montenegro and the Serbs of Kosovo could actually come out on top, possibly, especially through, through the fact that the European Union and NATO are essentially drained. They've drained not just their tanks and ammunition shortage. There's a huge ammunition shortage. They've given everything to Ukraine. This is a sacrificial lamb of sorts, which has given Bit, you know this particular golden calf that they've sacrificed to, which has brought around nothing. Essentially, it's just pagan idol of you know that they've donated to, and nothing has come of it. So the European Union, I think, is not interested, and they're willing to actually maybe even give Dodik what he wants. You know, we'll see them possibly giving up, giving up some sort of ter- territorial integrity of Bosnia Herzegovina. That's just my thoughts behind it. Dodik may also like you know, like the political shark that he is. Right, he's a powerful right wing politician. He can probably smell the blood in the water. He can see the EU, NATO being weakened over the Ukrainian conflict, and he may now actually come out and actually make these statements openly knowing that there won't be any retaliation for it yeah i mean again and vucic has recently stated that he has no intention of ever signing any recognition of kosovo we talked about this last week despite the fact that alban kurti seems possibly willing to concede on serbian autonomy for the municipalities in the north of kosovo matoya but at the end of the day it does seem that as russia wins in ukraine so too do the serbs feel emboldened to reassert their claims they're not going to cave to the European Union as the European Union's proxy completely loses to their ally Russia, right? I mean, that wouldn't that wouldn't be smart politics at all. So I think they're savvy, they're aware of what's going on, they're aware of the meta and they're gonna they're not going to cave in the midst of their enemy totally losing. But in the same region, it, we we've talked a lot about the Macedonian church issue and how it's very emblematic of the real struggle between the ecumenical patriarchate and then basically everybody else in the in the orthodox world of course including the Russians and the, the Slavic world with the Serbs as well and this is recent the Macedonians have recently concelebrated with Rokor hierarchs or Russian hierarchs for the first time since since Macedonian autocephaly recently and that and that was in Australia so one of the main bishops of the new autonomous you know the new autocephalous Macedonian orthodox church concelebrated with with Bishop George of Sydney of, of Rokor, and this was, there's a big Macedonian diaspora. And Australia is kind of the king of the Orthodox diasporas. They've got their Russians, their Greeks, their Serbs, and their Macedonians, and now those those communities have come together. So Macedonia, this is a big repudiation, by the way, of, of the ecumenical patriarchate, because the EP, in their tomos of autocephaly, they tried to get the Macedonians to accept. The Macedonians accepted the Serbian tomos of autocephaly, claiming autocephaly from the Serbs, not from not granting the EP the right to just grant autocephaly to whoever they want, which is what they claim in Ukraine. But part of that claim from the EP was that all of the Macedonian diaspora parishes would be under the ecumenical patriarchate directly, directly under Constantinople. And so the fact that this uh, diaspora metropolitan is just concelebrating with Rokor is a direct repudiation of of this claim of jurisdiction over them by the EP, who of course, the EP is in total schism from Rokor, so there wouldn't be any concelebration there going on, which which shows that the Macedonians see see what's going on here and want to be want to be affiliated with the with the true Orthodox world at this point, which are not those backing the 
the schismatic OCU. So that's a good thing to see. We, we, we like to see all of that. And at the same time, we've, we've talked about this in the past, but it got fully finalized in the church. Of course, we talked about the reunion now between Antioch and Jerusalem, but Archbishop Christophoros, representing Jerusalem, the JP, he met with the Antiochian Metropolitans Ephraim and Athanasios from Syria in the capital of the Kingdom of Jordan to solidify their communion. The Antiochian Orthodox Church, they've also donated considerable funds towards the suffering Palestinians to be distributed by the Orthodox Church of Jerusalem. So we talked about how the issue of jurisdiction over Qatar, which really only involved like one hierarchy monk was resolved. So 10 years of non-communion between Antioch and Jerusalem has been resolved, two of the most ancient patriarchates. So this is glorious to see. So we are seeing in the midst, despite all of the division that the ecumenical patriarchs seek to sow, Orthodox unity is making a lot of progress. So it's really encouraging to see that, as well as Patriarch Kirill also had, had announcements recently. But in general, despite the horrors in Gaza, despite the horrors in Ukraine, Orthodoxy, you know, it glories on. That's right. It's it's really symbolic how some of these, um, you, know, you know, it's it's heartwarming how some of these like powerful moments in in Orthodox these reunions they cause a lot more of an effect than say the infighting and the small schisms which take place. So definitely we appreciate the good things and we can see the Holy Spirit actually working through our hierarchs and through the Orthodox communities, uh, reuniting them and actually bringing people together in harmony. And naturally, um, in terms of reunion with like it's hist- and it, like a big historical event in Russia at the time was on Russian Unity Day on the fourth of November. Patriarch Kirill makes a really uh, a powerful announcement actually during after the liturgy he brings out an icon of the Theotokos a very old icon and he states that we see before us the original miracul- miraculous icon of the Kazan mother of God the lady of Kazan which saved our people from foreign invasion during the Polish occupation of Moscow in 1612 it is unknown what the consequences of that intervention would have been from the Polish if not for the intercession of the mother of God this image is sacred to us so the Patriarch Kirill announces that in his own patriarchal palace where he does have a personal collection of very old icons he's actually found this Theotokos icon which you know he thought to himself look this looks very old it might be several hundreds hundreds of years old and he's given it to forensic testing and they've come back and stated that yes its origins actually lie in the late 16th century which essentially Patriot Kirill concluded that there was only one copy of this icon made in the late 16th century there was the original Kazan Theotokos which still remains lost and it was lost in 1904. But this was the first copy. And another, naturally, as if you guys remember the Kazan Theotokos, essentially most of its copies, there were at least 15 to 16 copies made in the first centuries in the Russian church. All of the copies are miracle working, which is quite incredible. Across Russia, I think at least 10 of the copies survive today. So the Kazan Theotokos is a very well copied icon, similar to the Ivoron icon we spoke about with Brother Jose Munoz, the one from Mount, you know, the icon from Mount Athos. But this is like the Russian version. So Petro Kirill, of course, announces that this Kazan Theotokos. The, this first copy was officially um, returned to the Russian church, and this is one of the, I guess, one of the biggest events, like a big triumphal event in the Russian church, I would say, since the election of Patriarch Kirill himself in 2009, and the reunion of the Russian Orthodox Church with Rokor in 2007 and, and 8. I think this is one of these, like, great triumphs of, of the last decade this you know i guess officially stating that the icon of kazan has returned to the russian church and the orthodox world as a whole and so i think um it's really a big symbol as well because the kazan you know now that there are these interconfessional issues happening in russia and there's like certain stirrings around amongst the muslim community the story of the kazan Fiatokos is a story of orthodox triumph over islam and i'll let you guys read into it a bit more but the icon itself actually miraculously appeared during a period of orthodox missionary work in the tatarstan kazan region against the muslims and essentially uh, the people of the the new converts from the new tatar mongol converts to orthodoxy needed a certain symbol right they needed proof that you know they've actually converted to the right religion and suddenly this miraculous icon appears 
right, in the story. And finally, it kind of its miracles, its healings, the myrrh, the, the, the miraculous smell and all the other miracles that come from the cyclone, it really helps strengthen the faith of these newly converted Orthodox Christians who've come from Islam. And so naturally, this icon itself is like the the main holy holy icon of those who've converted from, from the Russian Islamic regions to Orthodoxy. And you know, it's come back to us today. And so I think it's uh, quite a powerful testament. Very good news, naturally, this week. And during, again, this week, this first week of November, you know, miraculous things seem to happen at this time of year. Really, truly. And we're getting to the end here and we want to hit our last few nodes of our slightly not so much less important but just less uh, less broad and detailed analysis here we of course the Essequibo issue continues to rock South America, Venezuela, and Guyana. Nicolas Maduro has tweeted and openly he's he's using the Wasao people, these these natives that are I guess native to that region of Venezuela and Guyana as a sort of casas belli because of course the the Chavist you know uh, Bolivarian type you know. Uh, communist socialists there are very racially conscious they're very in favor of these indigenous as opposed to these european colonizers so of course guyana being you know a small country very much kind of owned by these international corporations maduro is leaning into this perspective and using these local indigenous people there as sort of a region that like yeah we're gonna annex this and it's because we're protecting these people kind of thing of course they also just want the energy resources as much as the international corporations do and they still even work with the international corporations so it's not really a uh it's not the most honest perspective per se, but it's very much and it's very much evident that Maduro is willing to move in on, on this region. But that's actually not even the most interesting kind of new border dispute thing that's been developing. We see both India and Pakistan, as well as uh, Afghanistan, China, Iran, that whole region, all the countries in that little belt there have been there. There's been a lot of chatter about about the border, whether it's India and Pakistan fighting more over Kashmir or this uh, Iran-China-Afghanistan agreement, which is is really interesting. That's right. I think the the biggest news that's come out of in India at the moment is that uh, both India and Pakistan, actually, which are only, these are two major cities. So Pakistan's second largest city of uh, Lahore, which is uh, essentially located just 200 kilometers from the large Indian city of New Delhi. Both New Delhi and Lahore are experiencing huge smog, which essentially is allegedly, and this is very apocalyptic, right? They're experiencing this smog in the city, which children are being sent home. They're being sent to online classes. Nobody is allowed to, allowed to go outside. The smog is causing burning in people's throats, and it's coming from essentially apparently pollution so both the indians and the pakistanis just uh, on their borders are experiencing this massive pollution from vehicles in fact the new delhi government of india new delhi has a population of 32 million people so it's a very dense indian city has stated that if your number plate ends with an odd number you can only drive on odd dates or else you'll be fined so if your number if your <laughs> number plate ends in two you can only drive on even dates on the calendar or else you'll be fined. So essentially, they're cutting back on traffic, and you can kind of see this as a new sort of technocratic law of control. So if you, you know, futuristically looking forward as world population expands and also pollution, of course, moves forward, and we're not, of course, supporters of some sort of greenhouse global warming type idea, but we do need to keep in mind the global te te technocratic order may be taking these examples, you know, similar to how they've taken the uh, vaccination you know, protocols to sort of whole new levels. So definitely, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, really disastrous effects on both Pakistani and Indian populations there in terms of pollution very strongly at the moment in both these big cities and naturally just moving on to afghanistan it's very very i guess you can say the most multipolar event has taken place where the talibani government of afghanistan the vice premier of afghanistan mullah abdul hani baradar ahund has announced that the northern pakistani wakhan corridor which connects china and afghanistan he said it will be open for trade so that chinese chinese goods can be exported out of china across this wakhan corridor into afghanistan and connecting them to iran so again we mentioned the 
the big union union of the future, Iran, Persia, China, Russia. So these three countries, which are again opposing this new world, Western order, you can say, well, mostly globalist order of the EU and the US and Israel, things like this. These three major countries, Afghanistan is like, hey, I get it. We're Taliban, you know, maybe you don't like us. You know, China doesn't necessarily like Islamists, but they're saying, hey, we could connect you two and we can facilitate trade. And of course, countries like Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, nobody's messing with the Taliban. These guys are war, these guys are war veterans. They've you know, allegedly defeated the US in like decades of conflict. No one is going to say, no, the Wakhan corridor, you know, you, you can't be used. The Afghanistanis, they do have like, I, I want to say giga Chad privilege in terms of like, they've proven themselves and they can actually facilitate these sort of international routes for their own country. And whether or not the Chinese will take them up on this deal will, uh, will largely, I think, impact um, Afghanistan's future you know, future impact on world trade. And I mean, effectively, this could be the great union between Iran and China. This essentially, China, you know, China does need a direct route to the Middle East and perhaps Afghanistan will be it. So very, very impactful here. Yeah, I mean, they said they're not only ready to connect China through Afghanistan to Iran, but they're also uh, ready to increase uh, the connection between Iran and Uzbekistan through the same territory. For those who don't know, this is the little panhandle, you know, the little boner uh, from Afghanistan that, you know, shoots out into out into China that makes it look even look even wacky. You know, it's the, one of the funniest panhandles you see. But at the same time, this really relates to a very similar situation and equally important geopolitically development. I mean, they talk about railroad development through the Wakhan Corridor, but this is from Yevgeny Belitsky, actually, the governor of the Zaporozhye Oblast of the Russian Federation at this point. Of course, most of Zaporozhye, despite Zaporozhye City itself not being occupied by Russia at this point, Melitopol and most of the actual territory of Zaporozhye is. And he said, construction has begun on a railway that will connect Rostov-on-Don and Crimea and will also pass through the territory of the Donetsk People's Republic and the Zaporozhye region. The railway will run from Akimovka to Rostov through Berdyansk and Mariupol. It's also planned to create an air hub on the basis of the airport, which is located in the north of Melitopol. And so this area is like, this is fully solidifying infrastructurally the, the land bridge connecting like we, the, the place where Putin just visited, you know, Southern Command Center and Rostov all the way down to central Crimea, which would then connect that railroad to the rest of the Crimean railroad system, connecting it to Simferopol, Sevastopol, Kerch, then making it a direct part of the line between the Kerch Bridge and everything. So fully interconnecting the new territories into the vast and fairly advanced rail system of the Russian Federation. This is this is a very big deal. Yeah, of course. Then naturally, this also creates an alternative route that the Russians could take, taking this massive train line, and probably the trains are going to be very modern, very fast. Naturally, uh, as an alternative route, route to the famous Crimean Bridge, which is constantly being bombarded, we've spoken about by the Ukrainians, uh, you know, storm shadow missiles as well as you know terrorist, you know, terrorist explosions as we've seen in the truck truck bombings and things of this nature. But while we're still in this region of Ukraine, I think towards the end, let's speak about some of the most the more positive news that, that have come out this week. So an icon. An icon of an uncanonized saint who we spoke about in one of our earlier April episodes, uh, you know, the new martyr Yevgeny Rodionov, who was martyred by Chechen militants in the 1990s because he refused to take off his Orthodox Christian cross. He was a Russian federa- early Russian Federation soldier under Yeltsin who was uh, captured, tortured, and eventually executed in a very similar, like similar to the first century, like a typical Orthodox Christian martyr. Yevgeny Rodionov, who we speak about. You know, naturally, one of his icons actually, um, and this icon was made by a local iconographer in Kharkov. It began to stream myrrh, 
And again, we see these miracles with uh, uncanonized saints, their icons begin to stream burn, miracles take place. This is how local veneration begins, so very heartwarming. And even given the fact that the icon is in Kharkov City, which is still under very heavy, um, you know, you can say Ukrainian occupation, right on the border of Russia and Belgorod Oblast as well. So it's it's a very powerful testament. And I think even the icon itself is, given the fact that Evgeny Rodionov is, is a Russian soldier and a Russian saint, uh, it's also at risk from Ukrainian persecution, you know, even the icon itself being a relic, but very heartwarming, I think, generally. Conrad, I mean, just to see the fact that, you know, we speak about these people and, you know, you hear about them, you write, and, you know, on the anniversary of their their passing, sort of the future date of their feast days, we talk about them all the time, and then we hear suddenly that, you know, some miracle has taken place related to them, and it's just incredibly heartwarming, and I guess there's this interconnection between the entire Orthodox world, and it does lighten our hearts that in one part of Russia, maybe even very far away, in somewhere in Kharkov, a miracle has taken place related to St. Evgeny, and yeah, it's just a very powerful testament of the Orthodox, a true Christian faith here. Yeah, be sure to check out episode one of Ether Hour. We give some great stuff on Yevgeny Rodionov. But in the equally white-pilling, you know, encouraging news in regards for the faithful Orthodox Christians of the world, especially us here in America, the Synod of the Orthodox Church in America, the OCA, has resolved to glorify Matushka Olga of Alaska among the saints of North America. So Matushka Olga, who has long been venerated in Alaska, she reposed in 1989. Uh, she's remembered as a humble mother, midwife, and priest's wife who was filled with love for everybody and especially abused women. This is from Orthochristian. There are many miracles attributed to her intercessions and protections, and we're going to link to some of these below. And with the Synod's proclamation, she indeed becomes the first female Orthodox saint of North America. She will be celebrated annually on October 28th, November 10th on the Old Calendar, and on the Feast of All Saints of America and the second day after Pentecost. And it's important to know her Old Calendar date, because while the OCA Synod largely is on the New Calendar, the... Uh, OCA Diocese of Alaska, currently under Bishop Alexei of Sitka, they're on the old calendar still. They've been allowed to maintain their, their Russian tradition, and that's in no small part due to the, the Native Americans who had been converted by, you know, St. Innocent, uh, St. Herman. They wanted to stick to the old calendar, so they were they were granted that by the Synod. And this is just very, very encouraging news for us. So we ask uh, St. Olga, pray for us, pray for the Christians in Ukraine, in Russia, around the world and that things would, you know, continue to thrive and that saints would continue to be glorified and that the synods would be preserved and the Holy Spirit would continue to move. But on all of those, I think that's some pretty fantastic news to end this on. Dimitri, I'll let you hit us with the last word. Yeah, thank you guys for your support. We've had a really great recent April Hour episode where we essentially, it was a Q&A episode we dedicated to the viewers. So the viewers and our supporters, your supporters, they all asked questions, which me and Conrad had a very fun time answering. And I think we answered most of the questions, including some of them in writing as well as verbally. So definitely check out the recent episode. And I think we'll be doing those Q&As mostly on a monthly or at least a bi-monthly basis, because there's definitely a lot of subjects which we simply can't cover in our regular World War Now news episodes, but regarding orthodoxy, geopolitics politics, conspirology, history, things of this nature, just essentially European culture, world culture, things of this nature. It's definitely some really deep questions, and it definitely give, gives me, gives us some perspective that you know there are very smart people listening to these to these episodes of ours, and there's definitely a lot of insight which can be given for some of the questions. In fact, uh, they're somewhat educational even for myself and Conrad, I think, most of the time, and even answering them definitely gives us as much insight as it does to yourself, the listeners. So definitely check out that latest day for our episode. It's, um, I would say it's probably one of the more interesting ones, and very 
very varied. We speak about different subjects, the old believers, some uncanonized saints. Uh, definitely we speak about geopolitics, uh, even some movies and things of that nature. So definitely check it out. It's uh, it's a great, I guess, connection between ourselves and uh, your listeners who, in fact, you know, beyond reading your feedback and your comments and your messages, we, we wish we could you know, relate to a bit more and sort of speak to you guys and communicate a bit more on, on the internet at the moment. Well, Telegram, I think, is probably the best place to follow us on, I would say, just because it's this Noah's Ark, completely protected. We can't really be censored. And it's definitely a place where we could chat and kind of share ideas. Yeah, totally. And as far as the Q&A goes, yeah, be sure to get behind the paywall to ask us questions in the future. Leave the comments. Let us know if you want us to do more of those. We don't just talk about those things. We also talk about ourselves personally. We talk about some of our personal backgrounds, some of our favorite saints, you know, our how we, you know, got red-pilled, you know, as the question tends to go in our circles. So it's a really interesting episode. Be sure to check it out. And yeah, if you like it, we're going to try to do more of those. We want to connect with the audience. And again, this may lead to maybe we start a Discord channel. Maybe we start some stuff where we can really collaborate with you guys so make a substack account comment on the substack comment on the youtube channel leave us comments on telegram comment on twitter and with all of that world war now telly that's the world war now telegram follow us there like dimitri said we're never going to get banned on telegram maybe we get ios to banned but even if that happens we'll still be you know viewable on desktop and we haven't been ios banned yet so pray that that never happens but uh, obviously uh, follow us on x slash twitter world war now underscore follow me on there gnome rad follow dimitri on there at ocanonist worldwornow.substack.com of course that is where everything happens that's where you can get behind the paywall and ask us those questions that's how you can get access to our 22 plus episodes behind the paywall where we talk about people like Yevgeny Rodionov we talk about Konstantin Pobodonostev we interview people like Abbot Trifon and talk about Blessed Dimitri we interview people like uh, Father Joseph and talk about creationism we interview uh, all sorts of people and we've got new episodes coming up too where we're interviewing even more amazing people across the orthosphere so worldwornow.substack.com that's how you can support us financially that's how you can hear all of our content that's where you can read our articles so don't miss out obviously subscribe to the world war now youtube channel follow us on rumble all the videos get uploaded there as well rumble another one of those noah's arcs so don't miss us there and with all of that thank you so much for listening ask for the intercessions of saint olga of alaska blessed yevgeny rodionov and all the others and with all of that thank you so much for listening and god bless